Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the People Who Surf Show. I am Chris Morrow, your host, and so happy to be back for season two of the podcast. My guest today is a very special one. It is the one and only Sean Thompson, the 1977 world champion, author, entrepreneur, documentary filmmaker, and today, motivational speaker who talks about the power of purpose, turning dreams into reality, and the two words that are key to his code, I will. I caught up with Sean at his beautiful home in Montecito, California, and we talked about a wide variety of subjects. This one's a little longer than normal, but I think you're going to like it. Enjoy. Sean Thompson, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. Now, I remember early 80s. It was the first movie ever released directly to VHS, Off the Wall 2, and seeing you and Tom Curran and Kim Maring surfing Ventura Rivermouth. So were you living here in the early 80s as well? Yes. Yeah, we actually came here... The whole family, that's my mom, my brother and sister, and eventually we all moved up here early 80s and loved this area and uh, really connected well with uh, Al Merrick. I'd been here in the 70s, the late 70s. I'd met Al Merrick in Hawaii, and uh, I needed some boards while I was in California. And Al wasn't known as a shaper. He was a friend of Bill Barnfield's, and Bill had told me that he used to work for Al, and Al was a good shaper. So that's how I met Al, and then I came up here to get some boards from Al. And in fact, I think the first twin fin Al ever shaped, the modern twin fin, uh, which was shortly after Mark Richards had um, released his twin, which came out like 78, 79, was bought for me. And, and that shape I still see on the racks, uh, the fins we developed, and, and I just had a long relationship with Al. He made me some amazing boards. We used to surf all day, every single break around here. The Hollister Ranch, we'd surf all the breaks. We'd surf Halama, we'd surf, we'd go out to the islands and surf the islands. We'd surf Sandspit with just like three or four guys. Oh, my God. We would surf Santa Ana River Mouth. I mean, all over the coast, and it was just such a rich period, I think, for me and for Al, and for Al to really start uh, getting into the cutting edge aspect of boards, because sure, he was a re really good shaper, but shaping more for the like the cruisy Santa Barbara style vibe. And Tom Curran was just starting to come up. So it was great to come here and and uh, see Santa Barbara. And in many ways, Santa Barbara was kind of like a time warp. Like a lot of California, yeah. Well, we're very much Santa Barbara. Like you'd go out at Rincon and, you know, the COVID was, was, was uh, a lot of longboards out there. And then up uh, up at the point, up at the indicator was mainly guys on like 70s style guns. So it was a really, really fun period. And it was exciting to be with Al and exciting to meet all the groms around Santa Barbara. And I just kind of fell in love with the place. And, and uh, then uh, when my wife and I were on our, uh, I think we just gotten married and I was still on the tour and I came up here to get some boards and showed her around the area and she fell in love with it as well. Naturally, it didn't take Sean long to settle into the Southern California community. When Glenn Henning and a handful of Malibu locals decided to start the Surfrider Foundation in 1984, they asked Sean for help. He didn't even flinch. He wrote the copy for their first ad, which featured him surfing, and a caption 
do a good turn for the environment. Today, Surfrider has over 50,000 members and a long list of accomplishments. Sean has been their longest serving ambassador. In the mid 90s, when the septic tanks at Rincon were consistently overflowing and polluting the lineup, Henning asked Sean to help generate some activism and media attention to remedy the problem. He had no idea at the time that a small gesture he would make during that effort would change his life. So the homeowners were all connected up to septic tank systems. When it rained, the water table rose, the septics overflow, flowed out into a Rincon Creek, and the crap flowed out into the lineup surface. We're getting sick. He said, let's do something about it. I'm going to bring a group of kids down to the beach. We're going to see if we can empower environmental activism amongst the kids and use the kids to highlight the problem. I'm going to bring down government officials and county officials and all sorts of media. So he said, I want you to give the kids something to activate their environmental consciousness. Give them something. He said, you've got a $100 budget. A $100 budget. <laughs> so I said, like, what can I do for 100 bucks? So, you know, we had a warehouse full of clothing. I knew everyone in the surf industry. And I thought, like, maybe I can buff the kids out with product. And, and then, um, and you know, I, Chris, I've, I've, I've told this story must be thousands of times. Mm. And every time I tell it, there is the sense of unreality about it because it just changed my life and what I did mm. to to help these young people and to help Rincon, my adopted break, my little contribution. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, but 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 with that, nothing in return and, and no like self-aggrandizement. It's it just like, okay, what can I do? Yeah. I pulled out a sheet of paper, I got a pen, and I wrote 12 lines. Every line beginning with I will. And I wrote down in metaphor form all the fundamental lessons that surfing had taught me about life. I will always paddle back out. Yeah. I will never turn my back on the ocean. I will realize that all surfers are joined by one ocean. I will never fight a riptide. Right. I'll paddle around the impact zone. I will honor the sport of kings, integrity, courage. I mean, it's like a little a little island. You, you can peel any way you want. And inside those metaphors, you can you can see anything. But I called it surface code. And I went down to the local print shop and I printed it up on a little laminated card. I even misspelled the word commitment. <laughs> misspelled it with a misspelling and printed a hundred of them and it cost me a hundred bucks. And I gave them out to the kids that came down to the beach. And that turned into a groundswell. The kids wanted more of the cards, the friends wanted them, the moms and dads, you know, everyone wanted them. And ultimately we solved the problem at Rincon. There's many people involved, many environmental groups, but it was like a little kickoff. But the cards just kept on rolling. Sean's value system was a reflection of his parents, who were both members of the greatest generation. Ernie and Marie Thompson both survived perilous action during World War II. His father as a tail gunner for the Allies, and his mother Marie, and the rest of the civilians on Malta, survived some 3,000 bombing raids. After one direct hit, she and her family were actually pulled from the rubble. After the war, Ernie went back to his celebrated swimming career in South Africa, where he was a national champ in distance sprints and a shoe-in for the 1948 Olympic Games. But in 1946, he was attacked by a Zambezi shark in the surf at Durban. Given Ernie's national status, the attack was big news. He was flown to San Francisco to try to mend and repair his mangled arm with multiple surgeries. He took the slow way home, 
making a long stop in Hawaii to recuperate. It was the middle of 1946 in Waikiki, so he didn't have to go far to find and meet Duke and Sam Kahanamoku, who just happened to be his Olympic heroes. After they learned of Ernie's harrowing stories of survival, they hit it off. Over the course of Ernie's stay, he imbibed their aloha spirit and admired their beach boy lifestyle. He took both back home to Durban, and years later, when Sean and his siblings arrived, they were appropriately indoctrinated with their share of those values. Duke Hanamoku had been my dad's swimming hero. He'd been his, his hero, and, and my dad loved Hawaii. Even in the 60s, man, you would leave your shoes outside of our house. And, and like you were the only house, the only house in, in South Africa, man. My dad was probably one of the few people in the whole country that had ever been there. So, so, so all these Hawaiians were like, were like gods. I showed you the first trophy that I ever got for an event for most improved boy surfer. The guy that won most improved junior surfer was, was very poor. My dad bought him a suit for the event. Dad never really knew him, but he's a poor kid. Yeah. Buy the kid a suit for the event. He just helped, loved helping, helping kids, loved helping me be the best that I could be, but loved helping everyone on the beach as well be the best they could be too. He just had this amazing warmth, charisma, joking. He could relate to anyone, whether it was an army colonel, an admiral, top businessman or like a 15-year-old grommet on the beach who had no money. People just loved him. I, I, I like to say, and it's true, that if my dad was walking along on the beach and there was a dog walking on the other side of the road, it would cross over to say hi to my dad. He just had this <laughs> sort of magnetic warmth about him that even animals related to. So my dad was a, was a very powerful figure. My mom was a powerful figure too. My mom had endured 3,600 air raids during the Second World War on the island of Malta, the most heavily bombed place in the history of the world. So she'd been a survivor, two direct hits, four years starving. Eventually they were evacuated. Jeez. And they gave, uh, Winston Churchill gave every inhabitant of Malta during that radical period, the George Cross, which is the civilian equivalent of the Victoria Cross, which is like the Congressional Medal of Honor. So she was a survivor, ended up in, in, in South Africa, I uh, met my dad on the beach, fell in love, and after his shark attack, because his shark attack happened when he was a, was a younger, you know. Now your dad, he was, he was in the war too, right? My dad he was served. in the war. My dad was served. My dad was a tail gunner in the South African Air Force, bombing the same Italians and Germans that were bombing my mom in Malta. Jeez. But years ago, when I was putting together Busting Down the Door, mm. and... I wanted to get some research on my dad's shark attack because he didn't really talk about it that much. And, and I collected all these newspaper articles about my dad's attack because my dad was a very well-known figure in Durban and it was front-page news. And I found an article that he wrote about his attack. You know how he starts off the article? It was an ideal day for surfing and for sharks. It turns out my dad was one of the first recorded incidents of a shock attack on a surfer. Wow. He had, he was on a little wooden surfboard um, and he writes about how the surfboard was flung into the air. He was flung into the air by this shock attack. And 
in one bite, his right arm just ripped out the bicep and, you know, savaged his arm. So he was never going to be able to, to swim or be an Olympic Because he was a competitive, champion. highly competitive Yeah, no, highly competitive. Yeah, South African swimming champion at uh, 13 years old, junior. Olympic hopeful. And then, yeah, I wanted to go and win a gold at, at the London Olympics in 1948. But, you know, life, life had something else in store for him. And it's like this victim mentality. Mm. My dad never, ever had that. All I saw from my dad was optimism, love for life, passion. In fact, him teaching me to swim and body surf 100 yards away from where he'd been attacked. So he never lost this deep love that he had for the ocean, would come out and teach me how to body surf and my brother and my cousin, Michael. And he was just right back in the water after the shark attack? He didn't care? Yeah, back in the water, uh, swimming, but always making sure, you know, point out the dangers to me. Sean right. never fight the riptide and yeah. you know, do this. And if you wipe out, never, ever leave your board. Mm. You know, he would see people get caught in a, a rip and they yeah. ditch their board. Now, always stay with your board. You know, taught me the fundamental lessons about about surfing, but also about about winning and losing. You know what I mean? Like uh, he, he would say to me, he, he would like bad sportsmanship. My dad would go crazy. Mm. You know, he, he was quite a... Uh, uh, even-tempered guy, but bad sportsmanship would drive him berserk. He was like a John Wooden character. Honor, your honor and integrity. <laughs> yeah. You say to me, when you lose, lose like a man. When you win, win like a gentleman. You know, like being a gentleman, honor and integrity was really, was really very, very important with him. And he said, never, ever complain about a judging decision. You'd say to me, listen, that judge's decision is carved in stone. Accept it, move on. Yeah. Don't look behind you. You know, so <laughs> you know, these were all great lessons for for me as a young boy. And then my mom was was this beautiful, vibrant woman, but they got divorced when I was young. Oh, I so, that. yeah, my mom and dad got divorced. So my mom went back to work, worked really, really hard, but really provided both of them really provided well for us. So we never felt that we were, um, you know, we were always very taken care of, lots mm. of love and mm. and this um, ambition to succeed, uh, this sort of um, push, you know, do the homework, you know, play hard. It, it was a very good it was a very good upbringing and be very... They were attentive parents. Very attentive and very, very civil. Mm. You know, I grew up in a segregated society. I grew up under apartheid in South Africa. Yeah. So, like, the school I went to was all white kids. The area I lived in was was all white kids. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of racism in South Africa. Yes, there was institutionalized racism, but there was also racism at a fundamental human level. Right. Um, and just like you had the N-word in the United States, you had the K-word in South Africa. Mm. It was a very, very yeah. derogatory word. And it was a word that lots of, you know, my contemporaries and other people would use referring yeah. to black people. And someone said it, not, not one of us, I've never used that word, but someone said it in our house once when my mom was there. And my mom screamed at them. She said, that word, I remember I was young, mm. that word will never, ever be spoken in this house, ever. And I remember that as a, as a, uh, I must have been 11 years old. So, so, yes, we grew up in a racist society, but that doesn't mean 
you're a racist. Mm. And our family, you know, we were, we were, we were sort of part of the liberal yeah, the progressive push, side, the progressive the push side yeah. that, that, that I think ultimately, you know, we all believe that, 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 that change would come. Right. Yes. Thought it would come faster. It, but, took, yeah. it, took, it took a long time. I mean, change came to South Africa in 1990 when Nelson Mandela was released from prison after being in prison for 27 years. And then South Africa became democratic in, in 1994. So... Um, and you're talking about the 60s here when you're 10 years old. Yeah, yeah. And into the 70s when, you know, the civil rights was exploding across the United States. And then things started to explode in South Africa, really explode in South Africa. Uh, to some extent, with the Sharpeville riots, they called them in the 60s in South Africa. And then very much so in the 70s with the Soweto riots and um, the, the activism that started in uh, South Africa, and then ultimately led to the transition to um, to democracy when Mandela was released in 1990. And you guys, a lot of guys, your generation, you guys were all compulsory, had to serve, right, for like a year. Yeah, everyone had to serve in the army. I, I went to the army, um, national service, every, everyone. That was just the way it was. The only way that you could get out of serving was if you left the country. Right. Um, you could defer it and delay it if you went to university. But I went to the army when I was 17 years old, straight out of school, finished my high school. And then uh, three weeks, a month later, um, I was on a train up to Pretoria, which is like, uh, you know, 350 miles away from the coast to do my basic training. I read on one of your old blog posts, it sounds like there was the kids who knew that they were just in there and they were out of there as fast as they could versus like the lifers, you know, or the career guys. And they hated they hated you guys. The lifers <laughs> were, they would call them PFs, mm. uh, permanent force. We used to call them permanent F-ups, but they hated us. And also, because I was Jewish, mm. they particularly hated the Jews. So there was a lot of anti-Semitism mm. towards the Jews. But you must remember the, the Jew that I came from and my dad's generation they were the fighting Jews. You know, these were the people that joined up in the army and they took no shit, you know what I mean? And we kind of had that, that same attitude. I remember when I was, you know, I was, I was not a fighter guy. I mean, right. I'd done karate and, you know, just everyone did karate then. It was just what we, because yeah. of Bruce Lee and everyone loved karate. And um, I remember I was in the army and I was sitting in the back of a truck. It was a troop carrier. And the best seat was the seat closest to the opening of the road, because you could sit there and the girls would yeah. walk past, you could see the girls, you could see what was happening. And that, that was the like the primo seat. That was shotgun. Not shotgun, not, the, not the, in the, the front. reverse shot. This was, shot, a, this yeah. was right, in the, right in the back of the, it right. was a, a, called the Bedford it, truck and it had yeah. like a green canvas canopy and it would drive through the town. And you know, yeah. the, 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 the soldiers that were inside couldn't see anything but the right. guy on the, on, on the end, yeah. So like I ran there and I jumped in, I'm sitting down there like first guy to, to jump there and, and a guy came up to me. Uh, and he said to me, hey, Jew boy, that's my seat. Mm. And then you know it's on there. <laughs> and I said, hey, it's my seat. He said, Jew boy, it's my seat. And I remember I, I got up and I hit the guy with the head so hard. I just split his nose open. The dude fell to the floor. And then, the, you know, then it was really on. But that's what we had to yeah. endure. And we weren't going to back down in any way shape or form and you know when you're 70 
years old, you learn, you learn that lesson that, that some people will just hate you just by virtue of your religion. I mean, something so abysmally ridiculous. But there are people like that in the world. So it's kind of a, a wake-up call. You come from this very sort of uh, privileged society where everyone is relatively civil to one another. And, and then, you know, you're fighting about a seat and you're fighting, fighting about because about, they don't like your, yeah. your religion. And, and wake up it's call. sad, but you, you see it. You still, you see it today. Mm. And, you know, the whole country here is still burning burning with with civil unrest and i'll tell you what yes south africa's got massive issues and yeah but the transition to democracy and what nelson mandela did mm. was amazing and and a couple of things he did right and the united states for being the greatest democracy in the world did abysmally mm. wrong one of them is in 1865 when the south lost mm -hmm. That flag should have been torn to the ground. Mm. That flag represented hatred. It represented slavery. Perhaps there was a tradition there. But let me tell you, when South Africa became democratic in 1994, the old flag gone. disappeared. Yeah. The old flag was gone. No one wants to fly that flag high because it represents two divergent paths. It's like you go to Germany, man, you ain't going to see that Nazi flag fly. No. Um, so unfortunately, today it's only today that these symbols mm -hmm. are being torn down of of, of civil war mm -hmm. victories. While our nation seems hyper polarized today, it's certainly not the first time. During the late '60s and early '70s, Americans, especially, were laser focused on social upheaval. Between assassinations, the Vietnam War, a space race, and Watergate, our country was peering agonizingly inward. Meanwhile, South Africa was so isolated from the rest of the world, it hardly existed. Its shameful apartheid government was flying under the radar of global headlines. But after Bruce Brown's Endless Summer was released, wanderlust surfers put South Africa on their bucket list. Wave-rich Durban, which sits in a near-tropical climate, became a beachhead of surf culture. It was a hotbed of talent, an importer of surf goods, and a way station for early surfing vagabonds. And thanks to Ernie Thompson, it also became a laboratory for pro surfing. In 1969, Ernie teamed up with shaper Max Wetland and Ian McDonald to create the Durban 500, a contest that would attract the world's best surfers. It later became the Gunston 500, a flagship of the future world tour. The event was such a hit that crowds of over 20,000 would pay gate entrances to attend, even in the early 70s. That's something WSL would kill for today. I talked to Sean about his father's huge role in the birth of pro surfing. Massive. My dad was such a powerful figure and loved people, loved young people, loved being around and helping people. My father was an entrepreneur the the biggest surfing surfboard manufacturer in South Africa was going out of business in 1968. It was called Wetland Surfboards, and Max West. Max Wetland, yeah. yeah. And they Max made my boards, and and my dad swooped in and rescued them and built a new factory. And 
and became very friendly with Max. And Max had a, a really good relationship with Midget Farrelly. So my dad's idea was, okay, well, let's do license out the Midget Farrelly boards and bring Midget out and create <laughs> a pro surfing event yeah. to highlight Midget and highlight the new boards. You know what I mean? Right. Create this yeah. huge pro surfing <laughs> event and have South Africa compete against, um, you know, other countries in the world, even though it was an individual event and, and, and create bleachers, wow. charge people to come in and, and sit there. So it was like fully futuristic. That's all thinking. the things that WSL so, tried. So this was in 1969. Yeah. So, and there was going to be this enormous purse of, they called it the Durban 500 because there was 500 rand, which was about $1,000. Like, yeah, it's for, like five bucks now, but yeah. Yeah, yeah it was like $1,000 in, which was, was big back then. Oh, huge. For a, um, to have this event. So, so my dad had the money. They went out and got sponsors. There was a promoter called Ian McDonald involved and Maxi, and they brought Midget out. And uh, the event was was eventually won by Gavin Rudolph. And it was yeah. at where where did they have it? That Bay was at Planning? North Beach, right oh, next Beach. right next door to North Beach. It it was um, a beach that was generally closed off just for bathers. It was like one of the best surf beaches in Durban. <laughs> but they managed, you know, my dad just my dad would pull strings. My dad will pull strings. When I was in the army, and he'd phone up the colonels, and you know, my son needs some leave to practice for the guns, and they'd give me leave. You know, they'd bring him a bottle of scotch. You know, he was <laughs> he, he, he was just a, a, a classic figure. So, so it was amazing that you know he he started that event. The event is still going. It's the longest. Longest running pro event, longer than Bells even. Because now it's the Bolito Pro. Now it's the Bolito. Yeah, now it's sort of transformed into the Bolito Pro. It's been won by amazing surfers. The greatest surfers in the world have won it and won world titles. Tom Carroll mm. and, you know, Sonny Garcia. And it's just had, had a list of uh, uh, Andy. This had a list of these amazing um, winners. So it, it was great to have surfed in it. And then I went on to win it six times in a row um, from... First time while I was in the army when I was seventeen. So yeah, you had like a shaved head and it was all shaved head, yeah. long hair, hippie guy. Oh, well, I had a shaved head because I was in the army. I mean, I remember going down the beach in my uniform the one day, and um, so it, it was great That's to hilarious. have that competition really be, I think, the vehicle by which surfing became recognised as a legitimate sport. In South Africa, when I say a sport, you know, surfing has a number of different components. And mm. I think that they can exist absolutely in perfect harmony and sync. Mm. And many, many people, surfers today, think that they are diametrically opposed. You have a competitive aspect of surfing. Mm. You have the lifestyle, fun, individual pursuit aspect. And the competitive aspect is just added on. Mm -hmm. or cannot be added on. But by adding it on, it doesn't diminish either. I think that by adding it on, it creates an even bigger uh, forum for, for young people to, to surf and, and elevate the sport. So this, when you look at surfing from just the sporting aspect um, in, in, in South Africa, that suddenly we had an international event. We had international surfers coming coming in and competing yeah. from all over the world. This is pre-tour too. They would come there. This just is because pre-tour. There was, yeah, pre-tour. They, they, they would come there. Randy Rarick was a big yeah influence there. He'd bring these surfers out because they wanted to surf Jeffrey's Bay and they wanted to experience the the culture. So it turned into this 
into both a competitive phenomenon and a cultural phenomenon. So, so you would have 30, 40, maybe, maybe 40,000 people on the beach. It was like one of the biggest, it became one of the biggest sporting events in the, in the country. So uh, like I became very well known in South Africa. Is Durban sort of the media hub of South Africa? Is it like the New York of South Africa in that regard? Uh, no, I think Johannesburg is the uh, media Jordan hub, still. but, oh, but, but certainly surfing was the sort of new endeavor. And then, uh, you know, then I'd go overseas and, and win the event. So, you know, I became a, a well-known athlete and it was great that it, it started with, with my father. Yeah. And he loved me being successful and he loved me competing. And then ultimately uh, he came to Hawaii in 1975. And this is, was one of the best times I ever, ever had with my dad. He came over to watch me in 1975 and that year, I won the Pipeline Masters. Wow. While he was on the on the beach. And it was like, wow. yes, winning the Gunston 500 was amazing and it's such a big, big thrill for him. But for him to be there on the beach uh, at the most prestigious contest in the world and see, I don't know, I was like 19 years old, to see, to see me win it, it was such a, so amazing for him. And when I was, when I was uh, working on, on busting down the door and we got some of the historical footage from abc wide world of sports used to be a very big well you know abc wide world of sports it was yeah larry Lindbergh and larry Lindbergh. Yeah. i was a bit it was a yeah, big, big deal, deal with yeah. all these these sports so we're looking through the tapes and the announcer goes and in first place sean thompson i hear this you beauty and i can hear my dad's voice your voice oh my, i can hear my dad's voice tears. like <laughs> coming through to me you know 30 years after oh that's amazing it was it was it was just uh that's amazing i lost my father a couple years ago and i remember about i don't know six months after um there was like a phone message that i had never heard and you know you get those and you're just like you hear their voice and you're just like I can't imagine what that must have been like after 30 years to hear his voice. It was so amazing. When Sean lost his father in 1981 for a brief period of time, he lost his will to compete. After all, his dad had been his biggest supporter. He'd taken him to Hawaii in 1969 for his bar mitzvah. And even after Sean set out to take on the world by himself, the two would talk after every event. But as painful as his father's loss was, it paled in comparison to losing his son. On April 24, 2006, Sean was in a great place in his life. A year earlier, he and Carla had sold their men's apparel line Solitude, which they started back in 1997, to a publicly traded company. That move allowed them to set up a design studio in Carpinteria and work from anywhere. Carla was back in South Africa with their 15-year-old son, Matthew, who was attending Sean's old school for the year. At 9 a.m. that morning, Sean had a three-way conference call scheduled with Carla in South Africa and their New York partners. Matthew picked up the phone when Sean called and sounded excited. He'd be playing in his first rugby game the next day, and he'd just finished an essay, which he was extremely proud of. It was about tube riding. He read it aloud to Sean, who couldn't believe it. Matthew had struggled academically back home, but he was thriving in his new environment. He told his dad he loved him before handing over the phone to his mom, and Sean said the same. After the conference call, Sean spent the next few hours with a crew from a Japanese surf magazine 
When he finally got back to his car, he'd noticed he'd missed several calls. The phone rang again. It was Carla. Sean heard only three words. Matthew is dead. He doesn't remember much else. A friend jumped on the line and Sean could only retain fragments. His beautiful son, a dangerous game, deadly consequences. Sean wrote about it in his second book, The Code. My life, our lives, destroyed in a moment. My beautiful son was gone. He died playing what is known as the choking game. Carla found him. She was devastated. and When I arrived, she had to be admitted to the hospital. I didn't think she was going to make it. She'd lost the will to live, and my focus shifted to saving her. I'd lost my son. I couldn't lose my wife and survive. We stayed in the hospital together. We tried to deal with our terrible grief and pain. A psychiatrist visited every morning. Time is your friend, he'd tell us. There was no escape from the enormity of the loss, the knowledge that we'd never hug our boy again. The pain was constant and unrelenting from the time we woke up until we went to sleep. It even invaded our dreams. Both of us were lost. Carla's mom, Vivian, flew in from London, and my sister Tracy arrived from San Diego. We might not have recovered without their help. Our remaining family and friends in South Africa rushed to our aid. Still, we spiraled into depression. Those depths where it's easy to lose faith, to close your eyes and block out the nightmare. After two weeks in the hospital, a close friend came to visit. He stood at the foot of Carla's bed in the small room. He too had lost a son and had been on the same terrible journey. Carla and I were aware that he had sought comfort through meditation and from a grief counselor that he believed was connected to the afterlife. Without preamble, he said, I have a message from Matthew. As he said those words, a single bolt of lightning hit the hospital, followed by an enormous clap of thunder. I looked out the window on a clear, cloudless sky. I looked at Carla and her mom sitting in the bed next to her. Had they seen that? Had they heard what I just heard? He said he made a mistake, and he wants you to forgive him. What he did was an accident. That moment marked a turning point in our recovery and a slow journey back to life. Had our friend made Matthew's death easier to accept? No, but he gave us a connection to life beyond earth and to Matthew. Knowing that Matthew was still present in spirit gave us faith to move forward. It was like a nuclear reactor that was out. It was just, it was blackness. It was despair. And, you know, during my career on the Pro Tour, I never, ever left anything on the table. So competition was really important to me. But what was the most important was outside of competition. And I can absolutely state that during my period of competition, there was no one in the world that surfed more than me. I surfed and spent more hours in the water than anyone. Not because I wanted to practice and be the best, because I loved it, man. I was the most stoked, crazed yeah. surfer. I come here at Rincon with Al. I'll go, I don't know how you do it, eight hours a day. I'd go to J-Bay, eight hours a day. I wouldn't come in off the wall, back door, eight hours a day. I would love it. I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> I was so stoked. And then when I, when I lost Matthew, it was gone. My stoke was gone, you know. Mm. Um, and a friend of mine kept phoning me. 
Sean, I want to take you surfing. Sean, I want to take you surfing. No, no, no. After I don't know how long, I said, okay, I'll go. I'll, I'll, I'll go. I didn't really want to go, but, you know, here's my best friend at school. We sat at our desk when next door to each other. And, and he took me to this break. I'd never surfed before, just north of Durban, where I grew up on the East Coast, uh, near a place called Belido Bay. And we walked down these steps. And as we walked down these steps, this amazing red African sun was boiling up out of the ocean because you're on the East Coast and the surf was perfect, four to six feet beautiful offshore and, and I remember walking down there and paddling out and crying when I was paddling out, man. And the, and the, the salt water, the waves were just washed away my tears. Both uh, metaphorically and also literally, it was like just this amazing moment, cleansing, cathartic moment. And, and I paddled out towards that, towards that sun, towards that light. Um, and, and a few hours before we lost Matthew, he had read me this amazing essay that he had written at school. Just read me these words over the phone because I phoned him up. And he read about writing inside the tube, but he read about writing inside the tube in such a perceptive way. And, and you know, tube writing was my thing, man. I, yeah. I, uh, that's what I loved. And, and, uh, and, and writing inside the tube is a powerful force in my life. And he wrote these beautiful words. And, and inside the words, he wrote, the light shines ahead. And for any surfer, you know, when you're inside the tube and you're straining forward for that light, it, they're so resonant. And they were so resonant for me from my 15-year-old, like writing this poetry. And I, and I said, Matthew, man, that's so beautiful. Who wrote it? He said, Dad, I wrote it for my English. Yes. So now I'm paddling out and I'm thinking of these words and I can feel Matthew with me, man. I can just feel it. And I swing around and I, I catch my first wave and started to feel better. I catch another wave and starts to feel better. And then I paddle up to my mate, Graham Taylor, that's his name. And I said, hey, Graham, what's the name in this break? Sunrise. How about that? The name of the break was Sunrise. So, you know, it was like the universe for me that had become misaligned and off balance and the feeling that God had deserted me. It was like the universe had sort of come realigned and, and that, that those words of, of, of Matthew's became for me the um, like a North Star, mm. like a process of, of healing in a way. And as part of sort of putting together the pieces, um, I just felt that you know, there were certain things that I, I wanted to do. Putting myself into these projects would, in some way, take my mind off this terrible ordeal that I'd been through and also help me and perhaps help other people. And I found that it really kicked off with the release of the book, starting to speak at, at big engagements, uh, producing Busting Down the Door, and, and really kind of getting back into the right. river of life you are getting back getting back onto that on onto that path and then i got invited to a very big leadership conference to speak um the guy family up said i'd love you to come and speak he said it's going to be a big conference two thousand people you're going to be the opening speaker i'm going wow mm -hmm. he said uh, right after you is malcolm gladwell and right after him is richard branson i went 
wow, that's quite a lineup to speak with. And uh, it, was, it was very well received and, and people loved the authenticity. They loved the simplicity um, and they loved this concept of a code of values and principles that could help people find their purpose and also unite people. So I just found this was a calling for me. This was like a passion for me. I was getting as much excitement out of uh, doing what I was doing as I was when I was on the Pro Tour. I found it was just really, really a, a wonderful way to, um, to make a living. And since then, you know, I've been going down this path towards the light. For me, this, this little code thing that came from surfing has become this uh, vehicle for me. It's been 25 years since Sean Thompson printed those little code cards for that rally at Rincon. Each of those 12 lines, which amounted to about 105 words, all began with the words, I will. The book, based on those cards, was finally released after Matthew's death. Sean was out surfing Rincon one day when he was approached by Gordon Sichi, the headmaster of Anacapa School right there in Santa Barbara. The tiny private school has just 80 students and it operates out of three little farmhouses. Gordon asked Sean to come speak. When he got up in front of the students, Sean told them that he'd written his code in 20 minutes. So on a whim, he asked them to come up with their own. 12 sentences, all beginning with I will, that reflect their values, goals, and purpose. He headed home that day with the results of their work, which is about a thousand lines of fresh new code. When he started reading them, he immediately broke down crying. Sean Surfer's code had become open source. Bathing in their wonder and wisdom, he was overwhelmed with inspiration and purpose. That little 20-minute exercise would become the impetus of his follow-up book, The Code and the Power of I Will. Today, Sean speaks regularly about leadership, individual and shared purpose, and turning hope into action. He speaks to corporate juggernauts like Google, GM, Disney, and Cisco, as well as prisons, rehab centers, elite universities, and some of the poorest schools in Africa. So I went back to grad school, man. I know, you got your master's, which is another thing that people just don't know about Sean Thompson. I was so fascinated by what was happening to me at these events and what was happening to the kids and what was happening to the, the organizations and what was happening to the individuals in the organizations and the teams and, the, and the, like the letters I was getting. I'm going back and I want to study the process of influence, inspiration, which is what leadership is, mm -hmm. the ability to influence and inspire others to all find and realize a collective goal. That's it. It's an ability. It's something you learn. I went, man, I want to learn more. Just like when I was a surfer, man, I, I was always learning, always watching, always learning, trying to get with the best shapers in the world. I, I told you, man, I worked with more shapers than anyone in the history of the world. Yeah. 54 shapers <laughs> I worked with during my career. I loved it. I loved being in there, in the shape. I'd stand there in the shaping bay. Yeah. The whole time while the dudes were making my boards. It was so insane to work with these Incredible, yeah, incredible, incredible shape. So, anyway, so 
I was older, I think, than the oldest lecturers. I mean, I was like way older than everyone else. And it was hard to study again, man. It was, it was really, really hard. And I think I read 108 books. Wow. 108 books over that 18-month period. Let me tell you, that is a massive stack of books. And my mind was so open to the latest research on leadership, the latest research on positive psychology, influence. But I went back to an old book that I hadn't read for many, many years, which is one of the greatest books ever written. And and any listener out there, if you haven't read it, you've got to read it. It's called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Frankl, It's, It's about attitude and it's about hope. And it's about this search. Um, it's about being able to, like, no matter where you are in your mind, you can, you have the power to be as positive or negative as you want. Exactly. You make the choice. Yeah. You could make heaven hell and hell heaven. You make the choice. Yeah. And when I speak to these poor schools in South Africa yeah. and kids chant their codes or write their codes, and there's no feeling of victimization. There's no feeling of blame. These kids know that they chart their destiny. To be a part of that process, because I'll tell you what I often say. I've got the best job in the world. What has been the, the most rewarding part of that experience for you? Every time I say to people, write your code, and they send it to me, it's like a gift. They are giving me the benefit of their spirit. I have learned a lot from young people, from kids. When I say kids, I'm talking about school kids. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the brainiest kids from USC or University of Oregon that are studying Master of Entrepreneurship. I'm talking about kids. Um, and, you know, I spoke at... Uh, Kamehameha School. So Kamehameha School, the repository of Hawaiian heritage and culture, they have kept the Hawaiian language alive. Without that school, all these amazing traditions would have been so done. So far gone, yeah. I spoke, and I spoke there. It was one of the best experiences of my life. All the, uh, the chaplain said, students, I want you to give Sean your mana. And they all bent down and they, they did this. Man, I could feel this wave of mana from these amazing, these, these are like the future leaders of Hawaii. And to be the recipient of that mana, and the chaplain said to me, it was so amazing. Sean, when you speak, you speak in spirit language. I couldn't believe it. He said, that's what it's called. I've never heard that term you, you can go on the, on the Grandmaster Google, you won't find it. And this chaplain said it to me, and, and I said, that's how people speak to me when they write their codes. Right. They write their 12 lines. It's like spirit language because it comes from... So deep within. It's so, it's so deep within. And then, and then what's, what's wonderful is when everyone writes it and then they share it. They share it with one another. And that uplifts and connects and unites everyone. And people realize that while we might be divided by party, by economics, we might be divided by religion, we might be divided by race. In fact, we're united by spirit. We're united by values. 
So I've read millions of lines of code over the years because I've been doing this for, I don't know, 15 years. And you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that everyone writes beautiful stuff and everyone writes different stuff. When I analyze it all, there are only two lines. And this is, this is like the fundamental purpose of the human race. One is, I will be better. As humans, we are fired up to be better. Second line is, I will help others be better. So altruism and connecting with others and making relationships and helping other people is fundamental to who we are as people. When Sean reflects on moments of his life when he was living by those fundamental purposes, the mid-70s certainly qualifies. He literally became the poster child of the free ride generation for redefining the art of tube riding it off the wall, showing everyone that it was possible to pump your board up and down the wave face behind the curtain. The free ride crew was there to better themselves, but it was their combined effort and shared vision that brought the entire pro surfing dream to life. They dreamed big, they took heavy risk, they paid heavy prices, but they succeeded because of each other. Sean won the world title in 1977, the very first year surfers knew going in that there was an actual world title on the line. His award-winning documentary, Busting Down the Door, was a beautiful inside look at their journey. Now, if you haven't seen that movie yet, shame on you. Stop this podcast immediately and go rent it on Amazon Prime. And if you have seen it, go watch it again. It's fucking beauty. I was so pleased with with the way it came out, and and you know, just everything. Ed Norton was awesome. It was such a la- it was such soundtrack a, and everything, and it was such know. a labor of, of of love that movie. And you know, that was that movie was was part of the healing process when we lost uh, Matthew and and. I just decided on the spur of the moment with Jeremy that listen, do it. And you know, I I, uh, I went and I said, Jeremy, we're going to do. It. We're going to go to Hawaii. We're going to fly the crew to Hawaii. I said, here, it's 150 grand of my money. Boom, <laughs> we're going to we're going to we're going to kick it off. And we knew the movie was going to ultimately cost us over a million bucks, and it did. It cost us like 1.1 million. But wow. the first 150, I went. I'm going. We're going for it. I'm just. We're going for it. We flew to Hawaii. We we interviewed. I think we interviewed 31 people. Wow. Amazing, amazing people. Um, and then came back and I went out and raised money to, to, to finish the movie because there was maybe the last big budget yeah. surf movie. I raised every single cent of that money myself. Never accepted not one cent from the surf industry. Not even one nickel. And we were so stoked that all these guys, I mean, Asked Eddie Rothman sitting down for the interview. It was amazing. I love the dog in the background. Oh, the it's dog walking shot. through. So I, I think when we walked up, he said, "No, don't worry about the dog. It only eats howlies." You know, we all are. It only eats howlies. He was. So he good. brought such an element in, and, and Mark yeah. Richards and Rabbit and PT and yeah. Ian and and it, it was. They painted such a nice rabbit. It's such a good storyteller, you know. And, he's amazing. You know, he's just and Ian too. Like Ian, Ian is incredible. Just, they were all Ian's whole thing about that fight he got in when you know he's about to throw the guy 
in the front of the car oh, just being incredible. this kid you know that was so phenomenal and when you talk to those guys um you know rabbit especially he's just like how much that changed him changed him changed him, him as a human it, 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 i mean you know the 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 violence and the suffering we had to endure over there, but but that was such a small part of this amazing experience we right. had. We, we we you know when I think of rabbits and what he did and how he changed the culture and then what he did after mm. his time on the pro tour, he had he was this visionary and yeah. said to me, "Sure, man, I'm going to be a pro surf." And I went, "Wow, that's a, and then I kind of went along with that yeah. that dream of his. But what he did afterwards, what he did when he when he led the ASP and changed it around to like that was amazing. best surfers and the best waves and then what Mark Richards did when reinventing surfboards and yeah. taking surfing to the age of acceleration and you know yeah. what Ian Cairns did creating mm -hmm. the ASP and what PT and him did with the NSSA and, and, and just yeah these were like they were huge the impact you guys people. had on culture the impact that you your little crew that free ride crew had on culture it was so I you know was the so heroes privileged. and the villains both yeah. you know what i mean it's like it was it was it was fascinating you know and then um and there's so many sort of next generation ones and it, and the story keeps going i mean look at what you're doing now look at what rabbits running for a seat office yeah running for office and and it's just it's so you know and you I gotta was, think with so rabbit's charm you know like he stands a good chance you know what I mean? He stands a really good chance because you know, people love him. He's an amazing storyteller. You get that guy in front of the camera. Yeah, um, there's he's honest, no telling. authentic. Yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, I wrote to him yesterday about the shark thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was crazy in, in Australia. I said, hey, 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 rabbit, you know, you know, it's going to turn into like a reunion. You guys have got to, you got to do something big there and. You're an environmentalist. I'm an environmentalist. We've been environmentalists. We've loved the ocean all our life. But the choice is simple: humans or sharks. It's mm. you know you, you got to you're going to have to make a stand. There can't be peaceful coexistence. You know, a tiger can't walk through a village right. in India plucking off a, a you know a villager every now and then and 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 expect there to be yeah. peaceful coexistence. And he said, "Yeah, you know, it's such a problem." And I've got a meeting with the, the head of the Department of Fisheries, and Jeez. it's like. It's here's a guy who's going to have a fundamental impact on on the safety of all Aussies. While Sean and many of his contemporaries have succeeded wildly in life in the years since retirement, very few had predetermined plans. All of them faced periods of struggle. As a minority partner in Instinct, Sean had a messy divorce from his partners in the late 80s. In the early 90s, right after he retired, he and Carla tried to restart their own brand back home in South Africa. But the economy there was in shambles as the country nervously approached its famed rebirth. Their business venture failed, and they lost a huge chunk of their fortune. So Sean headed back to California in the mid-90s, looking for his next move. And I came over here to look, look for a job. And uh, Carla said, we're not going to start our own business. We're going to find a job. And I remember knocking on the doors. And the doors got shut. Quicksilver, Billabong, you name it. I knocked on those doors. And I was a, um, I thought, I, you know, there, there was opportunity. I was well-educated. I had my, you know, bachelor's and 
You ran instinct. Business administration. <laughs> yeah, I ran instinct. It was one of the top three brands in the world at, yeah. that, at that time. I mean, I had, yeah. uh, you know, I, I'd been a pro surfer. I had a right. nice following, and you know, I'd, I'd, I'd done. I thought I had credentials. They all said no, and you know, took a chance on me. Yvonne Chenard from Patagonia. Yvonne Chenard. Patagonia, a company I'd never, ever heard of. Al Merrick said to me, hey, my last day there, after all these doors had been shut, uh, he said, hey, Sean, there's a little company in Ventura you should check out. He said, it's called Patagonia. I said, I've never, ever heard of it. He said, check it out. I remember I phoned up. I said, I'm, I, I need, I've got an interview. I went in there, met the crew. And I said, I need an offer by the end of the today, end of the day. They made a place for me. They made a place for me. And this was during the roaring days of the surf industry. Right. Starting to boom, yeah. Yeah. Now they turned their back on me. Um, and it just gave me, it gave me insight into profit sales and growth. Mm. And when I worked for Patagonia, it gave me an insight into profit sales and growth and purpose. And it's been sad. You know, over the years and the progression of of how some world champions and how some of those guys have gone to the dark side, mm, yeah, and have died young. It's been it's been it's been really sad, and and I do think I do think it's an indictment of the surfing industry. The surfing industry should have taken care of their own. The surf industry had been the beneficiary of their unbelievable talent and their mm. Uh, amazing charismas and, and their and their notoriety and their publicity, and um, I think they had more of a more of a responsibility to. I've uh, it's funny take care. We talk. I've had a, this conversation with a few people. I think I talked about it with like Mark Price and obviously Michael, your cousin, ran Gotcha. I mean, they had so many young guys. Remember Matt Archibald and David yeah. Eggers were out on the tour when they were 16 years old. They, and I asked, like, hey, how come those guys didn't have chaperones? <laughs> you know, this was the days before, you know, nobody got paid enough to have a, a guy around. And, you know, I think Mark, he was like, you know, we were all kids running those companies ourselves. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, like, none of us were parents yet. Like, none of us knew. That was somewhat of... And I'm like, yeah, I, that kind of makes sense in some way. You know, it's like I look at the when you look at the industry. I mean, Michael probably knew better, but um, you guys are. Yeah, they all made, you know, they all they I think they all made, um, you know, they they made uh, they made mistakes. And I think I think today, you know, the industry, it's, it's just different today. It's run. Um, it's run by different people yeah. with different values that, that, are, that are quite far removed from. The surf guys from from the, the you know the surf at the core, but but there was definitely I was always anti drug. Yeah, I mean I never I've never even smoked, I've never even smoked dope. I've never even smoked a joint. Right. But I wasn't you know puritanical or moralistic. I mean I had fun time partying. Yeah. You know I used to you know I, I had a great time. Yeah. On the tour, but you could have a great time and not get involved with drugs that would ultimately destroy you. Because no one ever has ever after their career gone, man. Yeah, those drugs, man. That was 
that, that was really great. So, do you think that might have harmed you as far as the industry was concerned? Like, because I wasn't the coolest dude, no, definitely. Yeah. I wasn't the I wasn't the cool the cool guy. Just knowing what was going on inside a lot of those companies at the time, it's like you have hiring Sean Thompson. It's like it's like having a you know a priest walk in the door. <laughs> well, you're not a priest, but I mean, it was like hey, that, you know that that that's... like oh geez, <laughs> we're gonna have to. I wasn't part of the cool school, but because that... of the because of the drug thing. But the thing is. I think you could still be cool, yeah, I agree. and not do dope. And I think, man, we proved it with instinct. Yeah, you know, we 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 had an unreal team, and you know, for a while there, we were a solid number three behind Quicksilver and Gotcha. Mm. Um, uh, before Billabong, you know, started to to get up ahead of steam, mm. and you know, we had Barton and we had Tom, and then you know, Ando and Palmerton and yeah, Michael the ads were great. The ads were All great. Good, yeah. So the ads were really, I think, reflective of the lifestyle of surfing. You know, yeah. The, they were very know. authentic to yeah. the time. Too. It was authentic, yeah. man. Waiting for waves is okay. Some people spend their lives waiting for nothing. Yeah, and I think I we, we really connected well with with uh, the industry. So the drug thing was was a big problem in surfing. It wasn't like a lot of NFL and NBA guys go 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 off the deep end, but there were so many Surf. kids that were, were modeling their behaviors after other yeah. surfers and um well that was that's actually another one i wanted to touch to you on because it's a sensitive topic with me too because i've never really been that guy either and one of your heroes midget farrelly was sort of another guy who was pretty anti yeah. that whole scene and 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 in some ways paid a pretty big price for it in the surf world because when the move went into the drug scene and he was kind of like, I don't think this is the right way to go. Yeah, Midget totally. The media completely shunned him. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in a lot of ways, his accomplishments in this surfing was marginalized after the fact. Totally, know? yeah. And also his contribution to the shortboard revolution was completely sidelined. Just whitewashed. Just White, co completely whitewashed. And, and I, would, I would actually say that Midget and his ultra short stringerless mm. was the foundation for the real shortboard revolution. Okay, maybe it started in 1966 with Nat Young and Sam. Yeah, the Finn. But, but, Midget, but, but Midget was right there. Yeah. Um, in, and I remember I, I, when, I, when I traveled to Hawaii, we stopped off in Australia in 1969 and I got, my, I got a quiver. From Midget Farrelly, that he shaped me uh, for Hawaii, my speedboard and my double ender, and and then we spent a lot of time with Midget and Bev in Hawaii that winter in 1969, and then I competed against him in 1970 at the World Championships at Johanna, and Midget was riding these like sh really short little side slippers, and Nat, Nat, and Fitzy and Wayne were on these ultra short little. Stubbies, which were boards, which were very difficult to uh, to surf, but but Wayne, the one day after he got knocked out of the contest, you know, did some really great great surfing up at um, up at Johanna, a little bit uh, north of the north of the contest site. But what I'm saying is that Midget wasn't one of the cool guys, and and you know, I, I mean, I like the Witzigs, but. Certainly, they they marginalized him, and he was like uncool, right? And you know, the smoking dope was the was the only way right. to be able to kind of see 
or to be a part of the hip underground surf scene. But I, but I still think you could be a part of the hip underground surf scene, but you just didn't have to, you just didn't have to smoke up, you know yeah. what I mean? Or you yeah. didn't have to, you know, do coke or you didn't have to. And I, I never looked, I never looked down on, on anyone. Their, their choice, yeah. you, know, yeah. you know what I mean? But you have but, fun. Yeah, you go, go for it. But, but my choice was, um, my choice was different, you know. I just didn't. I didn't want to go down that. Uh, I didn't want to go down that path. I mean, I remember the, you know, one of my first trips to to Hawaii, and I was staying, and I write about it, and I write about it in the code. I was staying with this young guy, his parents, and him, and and uh, you know, I walked up to his room, and I was staying downstairs renting a room, and he had a piece of aluminium foil, and he had a pile of powder on it. And and was burning it underneath and smoking the smoke through through a straw. And I asked him, "Man, what are you doing?" He said, "He's chasing the dragon." Mm. He said, "Come on, try it, Sean. Try it, Sean." And you know, you like, what do you what do you do? Like, I'm staying downstairs, and yeah, he's kind of my mate, and we were surfing together. Like, like, what do you do? You know, smoke the pipe with me. He said, and he'll never forget. He said to me, "All the guys at Pipeline are doing it." And I tell this story to kids that like I wanted to be one of the guys, man. Yeah. I, re- I wanted to be one of the guys at Pipeline. You know yeah. what I mean? That was like, I was 18 years old, man. I wanted to be, I wanted to be a guy at Pipeline. So for me, you know, that, 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 that moment was like a wake up call and, and, and I can see so many young people. You get it, you're faced with that decision. Like, what do you do? Mm. Smoke the pipe or not? It's a really simple decision, but it's a hard one. So when that kid said that to you, what ultimately did you do? Were you just like, nah, I'm good? Just said, nah, it's not for me. I went downstairs, yeah. packed my bags, Done. out of there. Yeah. I just knew I couldn't, I couldn't be around that, yeah. that, 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 that type of atmosphere. And I think, you know, that's what happens to a lot of these young yeah, we're talking about boys to men. It's kind of a good Young segue, people. right? Yeah, like, they get they, they they get caught up and they have these negative mentors in a way, mm-hmm. and this negative modeling behavior and this kind of negative emotional contagion and and um, it's sad to see that we all have this amazing power for good and for evil. Mm. You know, by what we say and do, we can impact others one way, or we can impact others. Yeah. The other way, and I, I always felt that that there was there was like a responsibility. You know, surfing gave me so much, eh? gave me so much um, that that there is a, is a responsibility too to like give give back. You know, mm. and it's the right thing to do. And doing that, like doing a good turn, yeah, yeah, it's like feels so good. It's it's amazing because like. As a parent of a 14-year-old, my kid's a freshman in high school, just started, right? And they're doing remote right now. So, But that day's coming, right, where somebody's going to hand him something. Totally. You know what I mean? And it's just like, he knows how I feel. And that age is so delicate, right? That, that junior high, early high school, because the friends you're choosing and the horizons that they have, those become your horizons, you know, whether big or small. Um, and it kind of gets me, which is why when 
like just meeting Joe Sigurdsson a couple, like last year and hearing his stories and hearing his backstory of how the whole thing came to be and what those guys do, what those mentors do, these kids who have nothing like zero role models or father figures in their lives, how important it is because there's this, this boy crisis in our country. Yeah. You know, so many wayward boys. And I think a lot of surfers, if you grew up around the beach, especially in our era, your era, you saw a lot of that. You watch Momentum Generation, how many of those kids had not very good relationships with their fathers and stuff like that. But they found something on the in the water. They found yeah. you know, they found a purpose and they found some positive. That was a good models. that was a good that was a good uh that was a good generation. There were some powerful role models there, positive role models, Kelly and Rob and Todd Chesser yeah. and Taylor. Yeah. Uh, it, it was it was it was wonderful yeah. to see how they positively influenced you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions yeah. of uh, millions of young surfers, um, millions of surfers around the world. That was that was a that was a good generation and Kelly came out of that, you know, he came out of that phenomenal. Yeah. Phenomenal, as did most of his, yeah, Shane his Dorian and Ross Williams. Those guys have all done, you know, Pat. It's 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 great to see how that was the first generation that really kind of made a smooth transition to post pro surfing careers, right? Like, you know, you you never went into surfing thinking you were going to retire from no. surfing. You guys, we made it up as we went along. Totally, we we totally <laughs> made it up. Yeah. As we went along, there was no like grand plan <laughs> right. at all. The focus was huh. how could we get enough money to go to get to Burley, or how could we get enough money to go to Hawaii? How could we get enough money to go to Bells? How could we fund this like yeah. amazing surf trip that just doesn't existing? stop? Yeah, exactly. It was like <laughs> that's totally right, Chris. It's like a surf trip that doesn't stop. Yeah. And then suddenly out of it, you know, happened this lifestyle, this industry, this right. tour. It, yeah. it was all, it was magical. It was so, and to look back now, it's so, it was such a wonderful part of my uh, life. And just, I just think back, just sitting on the beach there at Pipeline and Sunset and off the wall and burly heads during the first 1977 stubbies. When yeah. That one was We're looking amazing. around and seeing like 10 point decimal system, man on man, two guys in the water, dueling it out. And Peter Druin, like this revolutionary guy, creating this first event on the tour in 1977. It was like, and the surf was perfect. And every day you'd call it off. We're going, why are you calling it off? That's going to be better. And like two days later, it would be just firing. <laughs> it, 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 was a, it was a wonderful period to live through. Yeah. Seemed like it. I'll tell you that. And you guys, you guys created such magical dreams for people like us. Like, I don't, you know, I remember seeing this movie, which you cannot get. I've, I've asked Jack McCoy, all these guys have dug so deep. Um, this guy, Grant Young made it. It was called Wave Masters. And I think it was, it followed the tour in 78. And it was such a good movie. And it was like one of the first movies that they showed on HBO when cable was first coming out. And we, we recorded it. And we used to replay this thing and it was 78 was a good, you know, the tour was a good year. And it was like, here you are defending champ. And it was rabbit. And they did all the oh, characters. Was there was, there was Larry, Larry Blair won the Coke. Oh, the Coke at Manly. Like, and, and with Wayne and he Lynch. won the pipeline masters. Yeah. And yeah, they were back door. Yeah. it was some of the best lefts I've never ever seen at, yeah. at North Stain there or mid Stain. It was amazing. And, and um, yeah, it was, it and was, you cannot find a copy of that thing. I, 
I was, I guess Grant Young, the man who made it, passed away, and his kin, Jack's tried. He's tried to get hold of that footage, and 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 um, he just said, yeah, they won't. I bet HBO's got some innovation. Yeah, thing, maybe. But I mean, maybe, maybe. there's something. God, something I found a poster for it. That's, yeah. that's all I could find, and. Man, I would pay I would pay five thousand dollars for that old VCR if I could right now because uh, it was such a good movie and it was like, oh, we were just like, jaws drop, just going. Wait a second, you can do that on around the world? Like, what? You very know? cool. And, and um, and then all of a sudden, when Ian and PT moved to town, and it's like they're just larger life. But wait a minute, Ian was just on Wide World of Sports last week, winning at freaking giant Hall Eva. Now he's down here coaching us like what that was a classic uh, and and um you know what you guys did i don't think you realize how big yeah, i think i think it's I, like I, the I dreams think, that yeah it's it's wonderful to see that um that influence and that the positive vibe from that uh era it's it's good and and it's good that, that a lot of people still still feel that i, I can't understand there's been there's like a lot of negativity, cynicism mm-hmm. in surfing. I don't, I'm not sure the basis for it. It's it's difficult to see. You mean towards the tour or towards what? I think towards the tour specifically, mm. in that the tour seems to be subverting the soul of surfing. Yeah, that's always been there, right? I mean, but way, way more. I think today, yeah, than there's ever been or maybe it's just that there's a there's a platform for the resentment perhaps it's the more publicity surfing gets the more crowded my beach is going to get what has pro surfing done for me lately you know the wave pools are yeah yeah fouling the spirit and soul <laughs> of surfing and 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 for me i think wave pools it's just like creating another surf break it's yeah I think it could have significance beyond that. I think people don't realize what wave pools can do. Mm. Let me tell you, if I was Kelly Slater, mm. what I would do tomorrow, I'd phone up three of the best shapers in the world. I'd get a glassing factory together and I would put it up right there at the surf ranch. And I would break new ground and create new craft that would boggle the brain. I would create new designs. Yeah, just for the ways. Just yeah. for the ways. And I would create new designs just for riding. Right. Surfboards are designed today for two things, for riding and paddling. Catching waves, yeah. You take the paddling out of it. Okay, so you're making these boards. <laughs> Little mine vehicles. Exactly. Yeah. So, like for me, tube riding was my thing. Yeah. There has been no progression in tube riding since I busted new lines in 1977. I'll disagree on one area. I think, I think in frontside tube riding, I would oh, agree. Yeah, without a doubt. But backside oh, tube riding without is where it's, it's the backside. Been, yeah, the backside yeah. technique it's, has advanced so that it's like yoga poses. I'm saying that the whole top half of the wave mm. is still the unridden realm. Yeah. So you want to you want to like bust open surfing? Yeah. You bust it open with a rad designs, yeah. radical designs, in the same way that that Bob McTavish and George Greeno bust surfing open in the late 60s in the same way that Mark Richards bust open surfing in 1977 with the tournament, tournament in the same way that Simon busted open mm. in 1981 with the thrusters. They, they've, been, they've been like the most significant 
quantum advances. Yeah. And it was, what's interesting for me, the way I kind of see it is you guys were, were so on the cutting edge of, um, you know, the surfboard revolution that you guys were a part of, it was one thing to kind of master behind the tube, behind the curtain surfing, right? Like you and Jerry and all these guys and, and what you were doing with tube riding just hypnotized people through most of the seventies. And then it was the high performance thing in the late seventies that sort of pushed the design thing with twins and thrusters. And, and you guys were, because it was such an arms race on the tour, the tour mattered, you know, like that's where all the innovation was coming from. And the way I see it now is that, tell me what you think, but surfing's become so much more diverse because the equipment choices that people can make now, um, you know, Kelly, when he took boards to such skeletal extremes, like the average guy couldn't ride what Kelly was riding anymore. And so you've had this very much a renaissance and all these different designs happening for good 20 years now. And now you can paddle out anywhere on anything and nobody's going to really give you any kind of crap for it. Right. And, um, and so the athletes, they're better than they've ever been. They're surfing the maneuvers they're doing and they're better than ever. But there's so many different, it's so much harder for pro surfing to encapsulate everything that surfing is because surfing's gotten so much more diverse. I think when you say surfing has gotten more diverse, I think people for many years were fixated on maximum performance. Is riding the best surfboard for the condition as opposed to riding a surfboard that might not be the best performance surfboard, but it's going to give you just a different feeling. So people are looking for like a lot of different feelings um, in surfing today. You know, you'll have mid-lengths, you'll have twins, you'll have guys riding throwback 70 singles. I mean, there's this there's this massive variety, and people are not so concerned about you know riding riding that best board that's going right. to um, make them surf at their at their absolute best. I just think that there has been a little bit of um, a lack of innovation over the last ten years. I think surfboard designs haven't advanced at the same pace as the surfing has advanced. That's why I'm kind of excited about wave pools in that I think that can be like a testing pool Mm -hmm. and it can be an innovation pool. But, you know, getting back to the WSL and excitement, I think that the WSL needs to understand that the fan base is only people that have surfed. So why don't you give them more of what they want? Why don't you give them... Dane Reynolds? Why don't you give them Noah Dean? Why don't you give them Bobby Martinez? Why don't you give them wild cards? People want to see them. They have an image, they have a reputation, and people would love to see them win or get their asses kicked by a pro. Uh, Let's see Dane go up against Geordie. And, and, you know, create more of 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 what the hardcore surf fan wants. It's funny you say that because, you know, one of the other guys who you've probably, I'm sure you read your share of Jordan Peterson stuff, right? Yeah. One of the things he talks about often that always resonated with me, his whole thing about hierarchies, right? And how when hierarchies become too rigid, 
they break down and they collapse. And people who are at the bottom have to have a way of getting to the top. Otherwise, that hierarchy collapses. You know, there has to be a a, a, a working order. And to your point, I think what's happened in my mind with the WSL is threading that QS needle is, is so hard now. And they're not getting the turnover of faces. And to your point, like when you guys were on tour there was that whole back 16 section, right? There would be 16 guys who come out of the trials in every event. And so you would have Nicky Wood winning bells. Yeah. You would have Martin Brad Potter Gerlich. coming second in two, his first yeah. two events. He's ever exactly. competed in. You'd, you'd have you know, Brad Gerlach at the Stubbies it Pro. It needs to be way more, way more open. Way more open and, because and, that's where the excitement is. And, and, but they're talking about closing it. No, like because, they're talking about making it more rigid. Because that's the surface. The surface yeah. always want to protect their, their, their position. Right. And let me tell you, most of those surfers, it's about self-preservation. For sure. I'm not talking about the very best guys, but the 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 the, the middle runger, the middle rung guys, it's about self-preservation. It's unbelievably confusing. You keep saying that you want to broaden the appeal of surfing. You can't do it with a complex system. It's like you know, having Wimbledon, you've got a it's 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 man on man and then suddenly you've got right. You know, six people on the court, and no one can no one can comprehend it, no one can understand it. And I said, you want to make it simple, you want to make it exciting. It's simple. There has to be a consequence for losing. Oh, these guys fly all the way, yeah. all the way around the world, and then they have to go out in a twenty-five minute heat. So make the heat longer. Yeah. Make the heat longer. Make the first Usain one Bolt. Yeah. <laughs> trains for four years. Yeah. He's got ten seconds, pal. All right. He's got ten seconds to show his mustard. It's it's simple. So I was. Probably like you, my entire career, I was a huge fan of Man on Man, and, and I still am to a certain extent. But I don't know if you've been to a, a QS event recently or whatever, but the four-man priority system, it actually works. Like, there's no hassling in a four-man heat. And what's fascinating is guys catch more waves in a four-man heat. They take more opportunities than they do in a man on man. I did a actual, I, when I was at the WSL, I broke it down. I was doing studies on how many waves were guys catching. Oh, really? And I showed it to Kieran. I go, look. And my whole point was like, as a fan, this is more interesting. I want to see more waves per heat. These guys are have, they have 30, 40 minutes, two man heats. And sometimes they'll just sit there for 15, 20 minutes. You're watching empty waves go by. Yeah, a yeah, no, and it's, I can it see, yeah, I can me. see that. Uh, I can see that. Um, I can see that concept that that there you know there is a lot of sort of downtime and still time in a. Um, it's huge. It's 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 in, in surfing is slower than watching golf, right? It's yeah. it's when you watch a golf tournament on TV. I think that's a good. No, I think that's a great point there, Chris. It's it's it, a, and with four man priority, it it does make it more. It doesn't make it such a a complete shit show with. No, there's no paddle over each yeah. other and, there's you know, no, three I, of one nationality ganging up against one of another yeah. nationality. Yeah. Yeah. You just, uh, and I don't know. I mean, I, for me, it was just one of these things where I think it's a good point. I, I was, I was, I'm trying to think of ways to make it exciting. And then, but, but I think your other point is, a, is the bigger one and more important. It's like, how do you make this more inclusive? There's red hot guys in Durban. You, anytime you run a really good, contest up in santa cruz one of those guys was in the finals pipe same thing you know everywhere has their local guys you put enough of those local guys in the trials somebody's gonna ring through and that's what's cool about surfing in a way 
Yeah, no, it does add that local flavor, that local excitement, that yeah. local um, sort of Cinderella story possibility. Yeah. It's a good thing for surfing yeah. that you have that. But it's like the, the, the WSL, and I mean, I'm a huge fan. Mm -hmm. They never, ever phone up, pick up the phone and go, hey, Sean, uh, what do you think about this? And for me, I'm going like, well, why the hell don't they pick up the phone? Why don't they phone me up? Why don't they phone up Rabbit? Why don't they phone up uh, uh, some of these guys who've seen it all? Man, we've seen it all. We've seen the successes. We've seen the failures. Why don't they take advantage? Like I, every now and then I have a discussion with Ian or I have a discussion with Rabbit and, and, and I go like, wow, this is a huge decision they made. Did they, did they, did they phone me about this? Did they, they, they ask you for it? Nah, I mean, okay, I thought maybe... Uh, the whole, like the, the new world title structure and all that kind of stuff. So dumb. I mean, when I say it's dumb, it's like, when I say so, it's dumb, it's, it's dumb. Yeah. It's just dumb. And, and I'm going like, why didn't they open it up for some discussion? You know, Ian, of course, is like, so just like livid. Ian believes in, in benevolent, benevolent. <laughs> Dictatorship. That, that, yeah, that's his theory. Yeah, yeah, totally. He's so funny when I talk to him. But um, it is. It, it's. I mean, for me, I look at the industry. Look, none of those companies that created the entire tour, none of them are run by surfers anymore. So, like, except maybe um, a little bit of Rip Curl. A little bit of Rip Curl. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Quicksilver, Billabong, Rip Curl were the mainstays of right. the... Right. They were the flagships. Of the, of Rip the Curl still got some, but they just sold. And so there's going to be a lot of um, a lot of change for surfing in the next year and a half. Say what you want about WSL and, you know, I hope they get their crap together and everything like that. But what, like, what makes me actually really excited about this age we're in right now is guys like you doing what you're doing, guys like Rabbit running for office... And then even down to the entertaining guys like the Mason Hose and the Jamies. I like that surfing is like this wheel that's spinning in all these different directions. And these surfers are having this impact on the world in all these different ways. To me, that's what's so cool about it now. Because early on, it was just like, how do we keep this dream alive? Right? And look at you. you you're, you're in your mid-60s. And you're still just, you know, like you're so fit. You got your boards right over here. I'm looking at your, you know board rack right on the side of your house you're still frothing no, i'm still know? very i'm still very i'm I, still very stoked you know surfing keeps me young surfing keeps me i think just dialed into um you know what's important like at this stage of my life you know i want to be connected to my family i want to i want to be healthy but also, I want to be doing stuff that is impactful and is making making a difference to my life and to the lives of others. Like I said, you know, through this code process, I've I've figured out that you know I want to be better, and I want to help others um, be better. And surfing has um, enabled me to do it. And I think a lot of other surfers um, have realized that through something that might be perceived as being selfish yeah 
out there it's it's my way of you riding that way by yourself so selfish it's yeah. it's 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 not it's very 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 inspiring and when i went back to grad school and i studied leadership and you know i think there've been 14,000 different books written on you know like what leadership is and like i thought about like what is it what is it is it is it, is it something you're born with is it something you build is it quality and and I came to the conclusion that that, that leadership's an ability to influence and inspire right. um, to achieve a collective goal. And the first part of it, to influence and inspire, man, that's what surfers do. That's what Jamie O'Brien does. That's what Kelly Slater does. That's what Mason Ho does. That's what um, Italo Ferreira does. That's what Gabriel Medina does. They, they, they inspire people. Mm-hmm. And in their own way, even though it's for themselves. It's not just for themselves, it's it's for others. And that's what's what's beautiful about surfing. And you can go all the way back to Duke Kahanamoka yeah. riding that beautiful wave at yeah. from castles all the way into Waikiki and you know how many people did he inspire and and as as pro surfers it express service we've done the same thing man yeah you're 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 performing for for somebody beyond yourself like, you know yeah. what I, mean? I guess that's what you're getting at is like it's not just for you you're you're kind of putting on a show in a way which is is fun you're, you're, you know you're you're, you're, you're in 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 many ways i've always thought that um that surfers are more artists and entertainers mm. it's more of a personal statement because i think how you style your style and the way you ride is a reflection of your in, internal essence mm. of your purpose um, and and when i see a, a beautiful surfer ride a wave you know male or female and you get that like warm feeling and you get that feeling of of appreciation you get that feeling of um inspiration it's it's rare because yes you can watch a baseball player hit a home run or you can watch the nfl guy you know throw the super bowl winning winning touchdown But the focus of surfing has always been and always will be what's done without a competition singlet. Mm-hmm. You will never see a surfer on a cover of a surfing magazine or maybe one in a hundred wearing a competition singlet. What's important is what is done outside of the competitive arena. And that's that's where we are artists it's art man surfing's art and 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 i'm proud to be part of that you know one guy mm-hmm. and, and 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 have showed my canvas to the well, world yeah sean i could go on honestly i could be here forever and we would never run out of stuff because i have so many other things i could ask you but your wife's probably just 
wants to wring my neck to get you inside. <laughs> no, so, so, so listen, this has been an honor and uh, we'll do it again sometime because there's so much more to catch up on. No, and- thank you, Tristan. I think it's wonderful that, you know, you're bringing surface stories out there to, um, to listeners <laughs> and, and I'm stoked to be, to be a, a part of your show and you know for anyone that's uh, that's listening uh, you know thank you thank you sean so thank much <laughs> well that was unbelievable i hope you guys enjoyed that show i just want to give a huge thanks to sean his wife carla and their son luke for letting me loiter for the day in their lovely backyard big thanks to johnny meek as well you can check him out at johnmeekmusic.com he's responsible for the tunes and sound design on this podcast Additional songs by Todd Hannigan, so thank you, Todd. And thanks to all of you for listening. I really appreciate having you, and I hope you enjoyed this one. If you did, please do me a huge favor and give this show a nice five-star review on iTunes. I'll be back in a couple weeks with a new guest that I know you're going to enjoy. So in the meantime, please check out my posts on Instagram. You can find me at Show. Oh, and before I forget, please check out the 100 Wave Challenges here. You could basically participate from anywhere. Go to 100wavechallenge.org, or you could just donate directly to boys2men.org. They're an amazing 501c3 doing incredible work. Sean has been supporting them for more than a decade now, and I am firmly on board now too. Thank you. Tonight, 30 years later, but never too late, these men will finally receive their world title trophies, the symbols of their triumphs that the sport couldn't afford at the time. A generation after the fact, these men will finally be recognized for busting down the door. started so it didn't finish there it really just started there i got back to hawaii and i knew there'd be problems so i set up some security for me so i phoned this guy i'm in the Alamoana center before i got to the north shore and i go uh, phone this guy up and he says hey ian there's nothing i can do for you there's a contract out on you <laughs> you hear that there's a contract out on you and that's a uh, sinking feeling yeah, he was a public enemy number one. I'd cop the, the licking, but public enemy number one had it now arrived. And with me, we were in exile, out of Kulima, and we were just, we couldn't move. We were, we were banished. They could not go anywhere. They could not, if they went to the beach, they would get, they would get mobbed or busted up. Somebody would, would knock them. Once that kind of stuff starts, it's like kill holiday, you know. Um, it just got out of control. I had to have a police escort to get to my heat at the Pipeline Masters because of the friction that was going on, because guys threatened to beat me up on the way to my heat. Gee, I don't remember any of that. <laughs> um, some of the foreign guys were a little too brazen, you know? They'd write shitty articles about us in their countries, and then um, a certain surf promoter uh, provided us with all this information about how this club has guns and knives and threatens people and we're like whoa what is this it was a really really heavy time and it wasn't a case of you know guys being a bit scared they might get a backhander in the water 
it was more a case of, you know, there were rumours of some, like, serious beatings were, were going to come down. I mean, there was all these stories about there's a contract out on Rabbit, there's a contract out on Ian, there's a contract out on PT, and these guys were going to get killed. Uh, Rabbit and um, Ian particularly were really scared for their life that year. They spent a lot of time, you know, hiding out in the hotel and sort of just sneaking down for quiet sessions. Here's this giant guy, you know, bigger than me, uh, and he's wearing these black gloves with the fingers cut out, and he goes, you know, I've been trained to kill fuckers like you. So, you know, we, we sparred around a bit, and this guy, uh, you know, kicked me across the park, and we, we grappled, and we ended up across the highway, you know? My head changed. And I thought, you know, fuck you. I'm going to kill you. That's what went through my head. And I was about to grab this guy and throw him in front of a car and kill this guy. I'm just a kid from Western Australia. And suddenly I'm in the middle of some sort of gang deal and I'm, my mindset's to the point where I'm gonna kill someone. You know, that's not a good place to be. Hey, what are you doing? It's over. This. This one's over. Don't worry. I'll be back. I promise. It won't be so long. Go on. Go find another podcast.